Welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer to the African deity, Eshulegba, a deity that lets us know that we always have choices. We are never victims. And we are so excited to have um, in the studio this morning one of our favorite guests, um, Mina Marita, who is the artistic director for Crowded fire theater good morning how are you good morning i'm well how are you fine fine so let me read a little bit of your bio and i want to let people know that you have this really wonderful um extended bio with all of the kinds of really good information uh on your website uh minamarita.com and so i'm going to read a little bit of about me um <laughs> Marita is the artistic director, as I already mentioned, of Crowd of Fire Theater. Previously, she served as the artistic associate at Berkeley Rep and its Center for the Creation and Development of New Work, The Ground Floor. During her time at Berkeley Rep, Mina artistically coordinated the Fireworks Festival, directed Crazy Wisdom Saves the World Again, and directed the staged reading of the Laramie Project 10 years later. As assistant director there, she worked with a number of directors, including uh, Tony Takun for Tony Krishner's The Intelligent Homosexual's Guide to Capitalism and Socialism with a Key to the Scriptures, and with Les Waters for Sarah Rolls uh, mm-hmm. in the next, or The Vibrator Play, which received a Tony nomination. In 2012, Mina worked with Anna DeVere Smith as the artistic coordinator for her play On Grace. As a freelance director, she has worked at Shogun, Shogun Players, By and By, The Great Divide, and The Norman Conquest, Round and Round the Garden, Center Rep, UC Berkeley's uh, Alice, The Act of Nihilism in One Long Act, Just Theater, Theater First, Sleepwalkers Theater, ACT's New Strands Festival, Berkeley Rep's Ground Floor, as we already mentioned, Aurora Theater Company's Global Age Project, Playwrights Foundation, and <laughs> I, what theater have you not act, uh, you know, worked in? Also, you don't. I don't think you mentioned that you were. Did you run um, the uh, Kaiser Permanente um, uh, theater program there? 
I did um, run one of the programs there um, mm-hmm. in tandem with many other programs and colleagues, yeah. Right, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I was reading I was reading also that you are a New Yorker. I am. <laughs> I'm born yeah, in Long Island. Yeah. Right, so how's your family doing? How are you doing? <laughs> you know, um, we're doing okay. I feel very blessed and lucky and privileged. Uh, my brother and family are around New York, New Jersey, um, which, of course, as we all know, is pretty hard hit right now. My father's in Japan, uh, and I am here with living with my mom and my husband. So we're kind of spread out all over. Um, but thankfully, everyone's healthy at the moment, um, and we're staying in closer touch than we ever have, which may be true of many other families out there. How are you doing, Wanda? Oh, I'm just feeling really isolated, um, this sheltering in place. Um, I mean, you know, technology, that's one good thing about this particular pandemic, since we've had lots of them um, as a species, um, that we do have technology so we can, you know, do video conversations and so you could see the person and and know in your mind that they're over there. (laughs) You can't touch Mm -hmm. them. Um, so, so that's been fine, but I've got, you know, a little new grandson who's doing all these wonderful things that are not going to pick up, you know, he's going to be running. And when I last saw him, he couldn't sit up, but now he can sit up. He can, he's pulling himself up. He's eating solid food. So I'm like, oh man, you're not missing all that. Well, it's hard not to be there with him, huh? Gosh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then having all these online classes teaching and just sort of this Zoom world, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're all yeah. Zoomed out, right? But oh, like, totally, and I think totally. a new uh, term I was hearing from a colleague was, it's Blur's Day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's just so wonderful, you know, to find out about this, um, I guess we wouldn't call it a radio play, but, it's, you know, Snowflakes um, or Rare White People, what a title, you know, for Dustin Chin's work. And <laughs> you're working with, you know, UC Berkeley's um, uh, mm-hmm. students. So tell us about this project, and it's going to have its debut on Friday, and people will be able to, like, pop into the theater and watch this wonderful work or listen to this wonderful work. Anyway, it just sounds fabulous. Why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, um, well, we started working on this, and I met the playwright, Dustin Chin, uh, I think it was in 2018, 2017, at the New Strands Festival at American Conservatory Theater, uh, ACT, uh, in downtown San Francisco, <clears throat> and we were developing the play, and the and um, when uh, I was talking to UC Berkeley's Department of Theater, Dance, and Performance Studies, they were, you know, usually looking for pieces that are going to make the student body think. Um, and a new play also is something that is quite the experience because often it takes a different set of muscles to dramaturgically work through a new play um, as an artist. Uh, and often the questions that one asks in the rehearsal room start to help shape the, um, the thought process of a world building or character building or relationship building on the play. And 
Um, the piece itself is set in the 23rd century, Nueva, New York, <laughs> um, and it is about uh, a sustainable, beautiful, peaceful future, which I just love thinking about, um, run by Black women, um, and everyone is brown because at that point, um, they're like everyone's mixed, and uh, the idea is that there's two white people who are on exhibit at the Hall of Caucasian Peoples um, at the Museum of Natural History. And a sympathetic gift shop employee uh, who's also a social justice activist decides to free them um, because that is an example of diversity in the future. Uh, but this all stems from Dustin's, Dustin was on a first date with someone in New York at the Natural History Museum. And I don't know, Wanda, have you been downstairs where the dioramas are? No, no, I haven't. Mm -mm. It's um, at this point, I feel like, I kind of feel like the Natural History Museum is trying to forget about <laughs> the basement, but um, it's where they have, you know, like the woolly mammoth and the, um, mm. Uh, saber-toothed tiger and right next to it are the Asiatic peoples and the African peoples and it's like Dustin was there and he just became irate of course because like why why is that the case <laughs> where we're right next to the animals right and our history is right next mm. to the animals um, and then you know so he decided to invert the premise of our actual <laughs> reality and um, have that be true where these two white folks, Benedict and Megan, are in a diorama in the Natural History Museum in the future. And um, it's a comedy, and it's really about how um, the sense of entitlement and privilege start to run amok, even for two people who uh, barely knew anything about um, their historical past um, other than what was written in the textbooks. And they, their caucasity, as Dustin has penned it, uh, runs <laughs> rampant across the country. Um, so it's an examination, ultimately, about the heavy lifting that the uh, person of color, the POC, uh, who frees them, has to deal with to, you know, um, and learns about as he's, as he's traveling with them. So that's the premise, um, and we were in production two weeks into rehearsal, um, and of course, along with all theaters, uh, had to make the really difficult decision um, not to be together physically, and the idea of not of not being able to be in proximity to make a play. Uh, a production of a play was a very challenging one. So, um, you know, I can go into a little bit more detail in a second, but we decided to pivot. So we made the decision to pivot and make it into a radio play or really more accurately an audio play uh, because it's edited and um, captured for recording and won't be playing on the radio radio. So uh, it's a, a radio play, uh, audio play, and um, the students have been absolutely remarkable. Um, we've been rehearsing for a couple of weeks. Uh, we've learned this new medium, 
with the help of some voiceover consult a voiceover consultant who's come to um, pop in um, and work with me, uh, and basically uh, we decided to. Um, put it into an audio format, but also the designers who were already very far along on their design concepts um, also wanted to share as part of that experience the work that they had done. So there's also a visual component, um, which includes scenic costumes, lights, uh, and then there's also a dance um, that will have a separate link uh, where we can see the choreography has also been learned by some a dance group that was going to be working with us, a group of students who are dancers. So that's sort of it in a nutshell, but uh, it's been an amazing process. It's been remarkable and just that it required so much of all of us in terms of um, flexible thinking, resilience for the students especially, and um, trying to figure out how to create together over Zoom <laughs> um, and make make this this production, which opens on Friday. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. So how, how do um, people tune in? Yeah, so this is uh, all available on the UC Berkeley Theater, Dance, and Performance Studies website. So you can go directly, uh, do a search for that. Um, It's events.berkeley.edu, and if you look, you'll find uh, Snowflakes or Rare White by Dustin Chin on that. Uh, And then you can register for free or if you um, are able to make a small donation. um, And basically you'll receive after registering a link to the show. Okay, super, super. So so this is going to be, um, we're going to be listening, right? Yes. So May 1st through May 10th, yes. Right. And, And so obviously... Um, there was a, a sound designer involved. So why don't you talk about, you know, sort of how you did that and uh, how many students are involved. And uh, and then you mentioned that there's a link for the visual design and, and then there's, I guess, another link for the choreography, the dancing. Um, mm-hmm. who, who, was, who was your choreographer? And I know you have, like, a really rich um, background in theater, are you still doing any set design, visual design, or anything like that? Not a chance, oh, in terms you know. of design? <laughs> no. I feel like running the organization and directing takes up so much time. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I've been primarily focusing on those things. But, yeah. Um, and we had, you know, to your other question, we had a phenomenal sound designer. Um, it's our first project together that we've known each of each other for a number of years now. Um, Elton Bradman, um, who is a local sound designer and uh, musician. And so basically, you know, originally, because we had this whole production conceived of, Elton had um, been working with me on, on envisioning or, or conceptualizing the overall sound and had created sort of a a skeleton version of sound design for the physical production. And when we repivoted 
Um, he was on board to um, make it into an audio play. Um, the interesting thing is we had to figure out how to do that <laughs> because we're not all in the same room. You know, the students, um, we all have different um, levels of access and resources. And so some of them are still in the dorms, um, are not able to go home. Um, others have, uh, you know, parents who are sick or who, um, uh, you know, are living with uh, their sisters or brothers for the moment. Like once shelter in place came down, we had to figure out where people were. Everyone had to figure out where they were going to stay. They're all over the country, including Maryland and the East Coast. So when we were putting this together uh, as far as process, we realized that Zoom, just recording straight off of Zoom was not going to work because everybody's sound quality is so different and there's, you know, Wi-Fi issues, there's glitches, um, all kinds of things. And also um, everyone's in slightly different environments as far as sound itself. So you may have be living with, you know, um, um, kids or little ones who are going to be making noise or nearby trains or animals or, you know, the kitchen where you, you will be doing your rehearsal or class. So we figured out that we needed to, at the same time, rehearse together because theater the only way you know how things work in a theater is the response that the audience gives you, right? Is if they're laughing, especially with comedy. So we figured out to rehearse um, and make sure everyone was unmuted, even though that's not a usual Zoom. <laughs> um, where you do Zoom, everyone's always asked to mute themselves. Um, but in this case, we did the opposite. Rehearsed so that we could know how the lines were landing, and I was able to direct and give suggestions and directions different based on doing an audio play versus a, a physical play as well. So there was that. And then when we were ready to do a final take, then uh, everybody would put have their earphones on so that the sound from the computer would not bleed into the recording, and then they would record onto their phone and upload that recording or file up onto a singular Dropbox um, folder. Uh, and from there, the sound designer had to splice together all of the different files. Uh, if you had six people in a scene, that's six different files that you're splicing together. And then beyond that, of course, the design elements of creating a world and an environment uh, with the sound design and um, uh, mechanics of like moments of sound, because this is set in the future. There's holograms, there's, you know, like laser tasers, there's giant um, roll up door, you know, fancy future roll up doors, there's flying cars. There's all kinds of sounds that are helping us build out the world and um, definitely to elevate the comedy of it was the style of music when we were thinking of like what constitutes music of our current day that playing it in 23rd century Nueva New York might elicit a laugh. So that that sort of is is a overview of how we went into the sound design and Elton is 
just did an incredible job with it all. Mm, yeah, it sounds like it's really, really, really wonderful. Yeah. Wow, wow. So, hmm, just wondering um, now that you've um, produced this uh, this broadcast uh, version of this work, what's next? Are there going to be others? Um <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that we've thought that far ahead. Um, I do know that um, there are a number of uh, different theater companies. You know, I think theater right now is in a very critical moment of both grief and um, uh, concern over the future of our field um, and the idea of experiencing a piece of art together in one room. Um, that seems very far off um, at this date. And I think that um, it's also an opportunity for some transformation, though I would argue as wonderful as a lot of this very accessible virtual programming is, that uh, there is an importance and ritual, um, almost religious aspect to being in the same room together, experiencing something transformative. Um, and that's what theater does. And, you know, um, there are a number of theater companies that are starting to look into audio plays as well as uh, virtual readings and many other things. Um, so, you know, the artists and institutions are all trying to figure out a way to make that work. Um, and, I think there's also a question of what people are wanting to hear right now or needing to hear right now um, and what that will feel like or look like or sound like in six months from now, a year from now, 18 months from now. So it's um, definitely an embryonic moment uh, where it could go in many different directions. For me personally, uh, I feel like this is an incredible learning experience. I'd be interested in examining it more for the future, but I don't know that that would be something that Crowded Fire, the organization I work with specifically, would be interested in. So we'll just have to see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I was just wondering um, if you could talk a little bit about uh, theater as, as a form and, you know, like you mentioned, sort of the ritual aspect of being in a room, you know, with other people, experiencing something in that particular space that's a living thing, like the art is a living thing, and as opposed to being in a, in a space where you're watching something that's already been recorded, um, like a film. But being in that physical space still adds uh, sort of something really tangible to the experience. And uh, I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about just the form, you know, the art form that, that you have spent your whole life, it seems like, you know, exploring it in a lot of different ways. And uh, and, and why is that? And, and what is it, the love for theater and that, that spiritual aspect of it, of being in the space with other people, mm. witnessing yeah, or, being, mean, or being the part of it? Mm, yeah, both, definitely. I think there is something um, genetically transformative 
And they even say this is true uh, scientifically. Um, and right now, science, <laughs> we're re, um, really understanding the importance of, of both science and imagination um, and inspiration towards imagining a better future. Um, but uh, there's something about when we're in a room experiencing a piece together uh, and and our heartbeat sync up and our breath syncs up. And that moment when there is a gasp because we didn't, we, we, we come to some sort of understanding that we didn't have before. Um, it can be related to empathy or interrogation or examination or simply joy or a sense of wonder. Uh, when we are experiencing something together. And I think um, while I am very grateful that we have, um, you know, these digital means to communicate with each other right now, there is a sense of, of community, right? And uh, it, we were, we, we, we have to rely on each other. We have to be in community to survive. Like we must understand it's similarly to, you know, quarantining or sheltering in place right now is, is an act of compassion um, for all of our neighbors and all of our, all of our community, all of, all, you know, all of the world, all of the country, all of our state, all of our region. Um, and, and theater is much like, I would say it's spiritual. It's like a kind of a, uh, a church in a way. There's a ritual to choosing to come together physically, to sit next to someone that we feel, sorry, we feel at the same moment with, or we um, disagree with and have that conversation afterwards um, and rub shoulders with people we may not normally rub shoulders with. It's not choosing to simply be in our lane in our one specific spot, um, our one location. And for the artists who bring it together every time, every single production, something changes in us because we're in a process of learning and empathizing and, and truly embodying um, a moment in time, uh, history or future, um, and examining a culture, uh, a people that is different from ourselves, uh, or sometimes, you know, in tune with our own cultural history and understanding. Um, and that, that time together as artists builds a remarkable amount of trust. I mean, it's so strange to work together for three months so intensely, seeing each other in the rehearsal room even more than our own families and our partners um, and our children and learning some, some really vulnerable and hard things about ourselves and um, gaining that trust with each other uh, where it feels like a chosen family for that period of time in order to bring this living, breathing peace in all of its subtleties and layers and glory to another group of people in the same room um, and understanding that we're not, you know, you can't 
hit the pause button and go, you know, get your snack or you can't, um, you know, um, you can't sort of just assume that the person on the other side is not another human person who's feeling. I mean, that's what's remarkable. You can touch that person. If you were to walk across the rows and reach out, it's somebody's years and years of effort and training that is bringing to life this other character and this mythology or story in front of you that is making you feel something profound. So yeah, it's, it's been um, a, a joyful journey and a hard journey. And I've learned so much about myself in doing this work. Uh, and I, I, there is nothing, there is nothing that compares for me and for many others. Um, and I think many of us are now feeling this. There's nothing that compares to our humanity and our proximity to each other, our ability to reach out and touch each other. Um, there is nothing that compares. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. Mina, um, you know, for facilitating, you know, this wonderful opportunity for us to be in community and to see a fabulous production. Well, I see, but listen and imagine. <laughs> and, and there is a visual aspect of it. Huh? Pardon me? Oh, sorry, there will be a visual element, so it'll all be connected in the same right. way. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Right, exactly, exactly. Wow, this is going to be so cool. Um, you know, Dustin Chin, snowflakes or rare white people. <laughs> uh, May first through tenth, and and I I do have a link to the um, uh, to the event um, on my website. So if people you know want to just click on it, it's right there in the description with you, and a link to your wonderful um, website, and um, also a. a not a, a live link, but uh, an opportunity for people to actually um, to to witness your your TED talk, which is really wonderful. Which yeah. you don't necessarily go into in in your your biographies because there's just so much, so many stories, right? <laughs> you have to choose which one. <laughs> Do I need to put here? <laughs> Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. So it's always great speaking to you, um, Mina, and and I'm glad that you know um, your family is doing well, and I hope that that continues to be the case for you know those of us that are so blessed and and that um, things get better for everyone else. And, uh, and moments like this just make the community a little bit bigger and 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 add some lightness to to this heavy moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank Even though you for the topic is not a light one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it just counts within humor, but it's not All right. Light, light. Exactly. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. the best vehicle. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, you take good care and have a good rest of the day mm-hmm. and in preparation for, for this weekend and the next, you know, um, for the run, you know, the really and it's really great it's not just one moment because people might not be available Friday, which is also mm-hmm. um what is that? National um, labor, is it labor solidarity or something like May first is yes. for the yes. unions, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me what it's called, because I, I don't think I I don't know if I phrased it right. I think it right. it's a general strike. I I don't know mm-hmm. the exact. Okay. Um, 
um, title choice. Um, but yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So we need to think about labor. Yeah. 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 Because mm-hmm. this pandemic is definitely affecting labor in all mm-hmm. different forms and in, in a real heavy way. And and then the people that are working or laboring and the people that aren't laboring, it's like, oh, that's another place mm-hmm. within itself. And I'm sure someone is writing is writing it. <laughs> There's a comment about it in the play, yeah, where the white guy is like totally unaware about labor and so makes an obnoxious comment. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Cool, cool, super. Well, again, uh, thank you so much, and I look forward to um, to seeing you, um, you know, in another form, um, you know, in through through your your work. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, yeah. I won't I won't see you, see you, but I will see you. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we'll see each other on the other side of this. So I have oh, faith. Certainly. Yeah, yeah. That is the hope. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Peace and blessings. Take care. Oh, you're quite welcome. You too. Bye. So we are continuing um, with our exploration of 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 healers who um, leave us with tools we can use to strengthen ourselves during a time when isolation is encouraged, while the soul cries for communion. Uh, It's called the Melanin Magic Sessions. Take 10. (laughs) Losing count of how many have I had? And and definitely, um, you know, this particular opportunity that uh, Mina shared with us to be in community around, around this wonderful story, you know, with life, breathe to life. It's not going to be flat on the page. You're not reading it. You're going to actually see and hear the work performed. So it should be really wonderful. It's an opportunity for that. And then later on this morning, we're going to have a conversation um, because this is my last show uh, during uh, Jazz History um, and Appreciation Month. And um, so we're going to be talking to um, M.B. Hanif, um, Charles Curtis Blackwell, and Amu Sudi Ali. So we've had we've had some giants uh, make their transition, you know, this year. Um, like um, <clears throat> um, uh, Mr. Um, McCoy Tyner and um, and the uh, incomparable. Um, Ellis Marcellus, who, you know, is the patriarch of a musical family. And so, yeah, so we're going to talk a little bit about about the form, listen to some music, and, uh, yeah, just sort of lift up the names of some of these wonderful, wonderful persons. And I had an interview with Delphio Marcellus a while back when um, he was, he had a uh, a CD that he and his dad um, <clears throat> produced together, and this is not the last, uh, the more recent CD that Delphio has um, has produced. Uh, there's another one that just came out, maybe uh, I think it was February or maybe January, and it was real. It's really wonderful, and it's a it's a party 
it's a party record and um you know if you want to get your Mardi Gras on in your in your house in your living room in your bedroom that this is actually the um the piece to um uh to play and so i was thinking when i was thinking okay what am i going to play now um while between Mina and you know my brother's coming on and I was thinking, well, I could just, you know, play some different music. But I thought, well, maybe maybe I'll play this. Um, we're not going to be able to play at all. But we could play a little bit until my next guest joins us of, of Delphio Marcellus's um, conversation about this work that actually had, features his dad on a number of pieces. And uh, this uh, interview was, it goes back about five years, and it was uh, in January. So... So anyway, we're going to have this interview now, and uh, and then we will go into our next aspect of the show. So enjoy. And um, uh, I, I really love that you uh, dedicated The Last Southern Gentleman to Melville Miller, a great musician, classy individual, you're right, and true Southern Gentleman with capital letters. Yeah, Melville Miller is a wonderful man, and... Yes, why don't you talk about this project, the personnel, you, your dad, Ellis Marcellus on piano, uh, Marvin Smitty-Smith on drums, and John Clayton on bass. The writing, all yours, uh, as reading, uh, from music to poetry, short stories, and social commentary. How and why now this project? And where where can a person read, you know, the poetry and short stories and all that? Because I was looking and looking, and I can't find it. Oh, in the CD? Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh man. There it is. No, <laughs> is it? Yeah. I was, yeah, <laughs> I, was, I was about to say, it's, it's unfortunate that uh, when they printed these CDs, I wasn't able to, like, you know, I didn't get the actual final product. Uh-huh. Like, as a reference. Yeah. They just kind of send you a PDF. So I didn't realize that the booklet would be obscured. So you have to really look for it. Yeah, I did. It's like I'm, it's right under there, and I'm like, oh. I went to your website, like, where is it? <laughs> and right. then I thought I, I thought you were going to be reciting some of it, and it's like, no, he didn't recite any of it. <laughs> yeah, I should put on the maybe put something on the website that says, if you could not find the poetry in, <laughs> in the additional liner notes. But uh, yeah, that's that's. That's one of the highlights to me, mm-hmm. especially the the secret love affair story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, darn! I can't ask you about it because I haven't read it yet. Okay, <laughs> we'll, well have we to do this. This we'll have to. Sorry, set ahead. another one up. Yeah, yeah totally, totally. So tell me about the project. I just love, um, you know, your expose on the Southern gentleman. It was just so interesting, you know, looking at Southern manners from an anthropological and historic perspective. Um, I found it interesting, your twist on the civilizing aspects of Southern culture, according to what you state in your line of notes, can be attributed to Pan-Africans. Uh, and then you also state that the music uh, that the music uh, to develop out of the South had, at its beginning, an emotional and spiritual purity which far outweighed the musicians. Emphasis on rhythm, harmonic, or structural complexity is appeal as an accurate expression, representation of American democracy has always been its close relationship to our country's social climate. 
And then you talk about, you know, I was just thinking, wow, politeness, courtesy, manners. Um, uh, and you say when men were gentlemen, jazz was a function of music. All African artists functional, I thought, when I read that. So I wonder if you could put this in the context of your grooming and what led up to, again, this present work, The Last Southern Gentleman. Is this an effort to document a phenomenon before its disappearance? Not so much that. Um, well, perhaps. It, actually, the phenomenon being the understanding, especially by young black men, mm-hmm. about uh, their actual heritage and their actual ancestry. Because the whole idea of, of violence and that rough way of thinking really is more of a European design. It's more European than it is you find the native people, people who live with the land, like the Africans, the Native Americans, uh, the, the indigenous people down in Mexico, people who live you know, with the land. Mm-hmm. Typically, they don't have kind of that barbaric Nordsman mentality. But what is amazing at this point is the young generation of of black males really believe that that's their uh, kind of the, their identity is through you know through the the street kind of what they would say you know I come from the streets and this rough way of thinking. Whereas when you're in Africa and you meet the Africans, you realize how beautiful the people are, and that's really where we are. So. Um, Pharrell Williams comes up with this song, Happy. Right. And everybody's like, wow, this is so different. <laughs> it's like the last song like this was Bobby McFerrin 30 years ago. <laughs> and so you figure, well, because our music doesn't represent this, typically that must not be who we are. That's actually who we are. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's who we are. We're... That's you know why you can take that song and you can see the video and everybody all over the world is grooving and they're making videos and they're smiling and dancing. That's that's where we come from, the happiness, the joy, and it's like we've basically bought into this great lie that it is who we are as a people and it's not who we are. Mm-hmm. And you know, the whole idea in music of of the. Uh, that all of that negativity, really, it didn't start with the Negro performers. It started with the punk rockers. Mm-hmm. So now you look at the gangster rappers, and that's kind of our calling card. The young black men really associate with that. So you hear, you hear the music, and it's negative, and it's decadent, and it's negative, it's negative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like, bruh, this actually, we're actually imitating punk rockers. We're actually... but. These kids don't understand that. All they know is, you know, wow, this is this is what I relate to. This really expresses the black man, and it's like, so, you know, what do you do? How do you, how do you step up and say, bro, this is all a lie? <laughs> so, I was a long-winded answer to the question. I hope it covered. No, it was perfect. It's fine. And so, so talk about. You know this this project. You know the selection of of the tunes, which you know are varied. Uh, you know who you have as personnel, and then this wonderful 
opportunity for you and your father to have this this wonderful time, you know, as musicians performing together for the first time. Uh, right. And, and an album and a record. It's like, oh, how'd you how'd you hook that up? And then and then I noticed that you you recorded it here in California. Why all the way in California? If it's yeah. the last Southern gentleman, it's like Southern California. It's like, okay, there's the Southern part, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when I when I when I first considered uh, the the musicians to help, because when, playing with my dad, it's it's challenging on a certain level for a, a number of different reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, the first thing is he has his own unique style. And he comes from, you know, a couple of generations different from my style. So you'll find that if you examine the recordings that we've all done with my dad, they, they're similar in terms of we, we, we're performing more standards and my dad is the true romantic mm-hmm. in the family, and I would think that's our connection. After him, I think the romanticism, I would be next in line. So we all try to tap into that romantic side. And, and you know, choosing musicians to play a supportive role. You know, I'd known John Clayton. I've played a couple of times with him, and I said he would be perfect because he had such a a great understanding of music. And he is a, he's a Southern gentleman. He's really, you know, as a, as a way the gentlemen play the music, and he understands what that is. And uh, then Marvin Smitty Smith, he's the, the perfect percussive counterpart. Part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it was a question of finding the individuals who have the... <laughs> you know, the variety of skill and the understanding of the music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then and then the selections. Um, I noticed on your website you have the Flintstones, but the Flintstones didn't make it to, it's not one of the 13. I love the Flintstones. <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> you know, we recorded the, the CD a couple of, couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, we did the video a couple of months ago, so... <laughs> I uh I yeah you know the Flintstones was I, that would have been a good call actually, <laughs> but the, the CD was supposed to be mostly slow tunes and ballads, mm-hmm. and you know we came up with Speak Low, which is an up up tempo tune. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know it just Flintstones didn't make the cut. <laughs> you know, so. Maybe next time. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be nice. <laughs> yeah. So that's yeah. 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 It it is um, it it is a quite, you know, really really nice uh nice, nice document. It's it's real easy and it just makes you feel good when you finish it. Uh, it just sort of shifts the energy, uh, in a, in a really nice way, um, in. Yeah, at least it did. You know, in my in my home, uh, you know, as I listen to it. <laughs> no, well, I, I appreciate, it. and that's kind of, you know, it's funny because in the in the line of things, I I would say when people ask me to kind of to describe the difference between you know my music and my brother's music, and like Branford, his his jazz is like really hardcore, 
really modern. Like you have to almost be really a lover of jazz because he can consistently play at that level and it really requires a lot. And then Winston, who's done a lot of things over the years, you know, he comes at it more from, uh, you know, from a, I don't know how the best way to describe it, uh, almost like if if you were to create a, uh, a great classical musician who played jazz. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, his approach to, if you see his jazz orchestra, it's like a symphony orchestra mm-hmm. yeah. in their discipline and their presentation. It's just they're swinging. They're playing a wide range of music, you know. And when I, my thing is kind of a, a combination, and I put more of that entertainment aspect into it. So that's always what I'm thinking about is, People have to enjoy themselves, have a good time. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. That's the African thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. That's why you could talk a little bit more about about you know sort of scholarship that went into your liner notes. Um, you know, uh, toward the end you talk about King Oliver's influence on Louis Armstrong. That's why you could talk a little bit more about that, as well as the gradual disappearance of his historic presence of its founders from the music African Americans. You state. In post 1960s American art, only in the area arena of jazz has the importance of negritude been marginalized to a point of near genocide. And then you you talk a bit before that about uh, what happened with John Coltrane and the, the dissection of his music and what happened with that. But you know, let's start with uh, King Oliver's influence on on Armstrong. What you say about that? Right. Well, that's the great part of jazz is just for the example my dad is a prime example mm-hmm. my dad has taught and inspired many of us 20 or more professionals who have gone on or 20 or more students who have gone on to become professionals and in return play come back to the bandstand with him and inspire him so for example the first track Secret Love Affair. That's that's more. That's my you know, from my generation. So my dad has to reach to a certain place to play that music because it's different from the style that he you know that he is mm-hmm. uh, that he grew up playing in. So that's the prime example. It happened with King Oliver came along and he trained Louis Armstrong. Then Louis Armstrong excelled. And came back and was like, and King Oliver was like, okay. Same thing with Dizzy Gillespie. Mm-hmm. Later on, he would play with Louis Armstrong, who was a major influence of his. And that Louis Armstrong note, this is what I've done with the material that you gave me. So it's almost like the, the great legacy of jazz is that a planter will leave a youngster crops, and that youngster will develop that though that those crops two or threefold and then come back to the planter and say here it is mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah i um the last time i saw you which was like a long time ago uh was um in oakland at yoshi's and you were performing in um max roach's um all brass oh yeah ensemble. Brass. yeah yeah so and what brass five exactly. right exactly mm-hmm. and 
Yeah, you were just so kind. I mean, you know, you're busy coming out, you know, into the, um, I guess, the uh, lobby and, you know, like you were really present. I, I always remember how present you were, you know, with me, even though I knew you were busy. And I just thought that was so kind of you. And, uh, and I was okay, wondering. Okay, so we met, we met then. Yeah, we met then, yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but it would have been nice to meet you on your home turf. It's like, well, that would have been really cool. So we'll have, hopefully that will happen, you know, one day. But, okay. But I was wondering if you could talk about just sort of just the whole brass, you know, the whole brass uh, tradition and, and your your instrument, you know, the trombone and um how you know how that is an extension of your voice your speaking voice or and how how you know so i mean you could have played other things and maybe you do but that is your primary instrument that we know you uh, as performing on so you know what is it about right. what is it about the trombone that that you love so much that i mean it's it looks so hard to play because you're just sliding it you know <laughs> right well you know trombone is is the instrument of romance Oh, like, that's what it is. Oh. And oh, wow. uh, the saxophone is cool, and a lot of times the ladies like the saxophone because it has a softer kind of a tone. But the trombone is the instrument that can really imitate the voice mm-hmm. because our of the slide and our ability to to slide into certain notes and to use vibrato a certain way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, so I wouldn't say that I necessarily knew this when I began playing trombone, but it makes sense. Oh. You know, that uh, oftentimes students gravitate toward those instruments that are a natural extension of their personality. Oh. And that's what the kind of what the trombone is. Oh, interesting. That's definitely what the trombone is for me. Yeah. Oh, so has, have you gotten a lot of women um, with that instrument? <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I plead the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I played the film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I will say that I, mm-hmm. it is my hope that I have uh, brought pleasure to ladies over the years with my instrument. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a friend of mine, Angela Wellman, um, she uh, she's a trombonist out of Kansas City. She lives in Oakland now. And... Um, uh, and she's really, uh, she founded the Oakland Public Conservatory um, uh, here in Oakland. And, and she's really about sort of looking at African sensibilities of, of, of music. And, and you talk in your line notes about, you know, sort of the, the shared, the cultural exchange between, you know, the Europeans, you know, who ended up, you know, coming to America and being slave owners and, and the Africans who, you know, were, you know, building up the wealth of this nation. But then I just think about, you know, New Orleans itself being almost like a separate country because of, you know, it being first, you know, a part of France and then, you know, becoming a part of, of you know, this United States, you know, with the Louisiana Purchase. And, you know, Napoleon still lost, you know, to Haiti, you know, to Dessalines and, you know, all the other generals. But anyway... um, I just wonder if you could talk a little bit. I, I'm gonna. I have like two questions left, and because I know you have to go, about you know, sort of, uh, sort of the Africanness of of 
New Orleans. I mean, it's just such an African city um, at the Flash of the Spirit conference that I was attending when, when I was there, when I, we were trying to connect at uh, the Ogden um, Museum of Southern Art, you know, that kept on being, you know, something that the presenters uh, kept on coming back to about how African New Orleans is, you know, the most African city in the United States because, you know, of Congo Square specifically. Um, but, but other, you know, African retention um uh, I guess, cultural retentions that you can point to. And one of them is the music. Uh, right. And that's why people really love New Orleans music. It's because of the joy. Mm-hmm. And that joy comes from Africa. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, America, America's just, it's just, it's interesting. And a lot of the attitudes that we see, especially from the the majority you know, it's it's understandable. So, for example, you come to a like how how quick are we to say, you know, uh, this is our country, and now we don't want the Mexicans, we don't want so and so here, or we don't want we want people who are legal. It's like first of all, we came in and took the land from the Native Americans, just took it, just said this. So, you know, I think there's always going to be this uh the ongoing quest to define who is american who is not american who has which rights who has the actual inalienable rights and the african descendants are never going to be on the like the right end of that equation because there will always be this and it's perpetuated in the media and We've helped perpetuate it ourselves. Almost that, you know, we're just kind of here, and you know, we don't really belong in this particular place. That's kind of the message that I see being perpetuated to a great deal. And uh, I forgot the question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, you just sort of. Oh, yeah. The Africanism. Yeah. Yeah, it's like. I think we don't we don't really it's just one of those things. You know, living here in New Orleans is still really challenging because you mm. just can feel it. You can that segregated redneck mentality is just very strong. But it's I think you know, it's not as strong as like Mississippi, Alabama because it's one of those things that as long as you know your place, mm-hmm. then you're cool. Right. You know, as long as you know your place. And that's what it is down here. That's what it is in the south. Mm-hmm. I just that's just what it is in in a lot of places. What makes New Orleans so cool is that the Negroes have always been cool. Mm-hmm. So um, amidst all the oppression and black folk was were cool with it. After after uh, the Civil War, that's when we find you had many uh, black Americans, many Creoles were in legislature. You know were being elected to office, New Orleans was a very unique place. Mm-hmm. And then at a certain point, Jim Crow came in and said, hey, you know what, this, we need to stop this. Because this may not really fare the way that we wanted, the way that our our forefathers wanted it to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know if there's anything that's usable in that particular 
soft answer, but <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking, you know, sort of around, you know, the uh, the second line, uh, the Mardi Gras Indians. Or you, you think know. more of a happy kind of a thing? Yeah, okay. No, 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 no. I mean, you know, second line is like, you know, like there's the dirge, and then there's the part, that, you know, right. when you leave the cemetery. But just, you know, some of those uh, unique traditions that that you find right. in New Orleans that have actually been exported, perhaps. And I was just thinking also about, you know, um, Marcus Mosiah Garvey and how Louisiana was there were more um, uh, divisions of the UNIA in Louisiana and Florida than any other place in the country, and then outside of that it was Cuba. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah, and I was like, wow, this is just, and, you know, Marcus Garvey is about, you know, sort of the African diaspora and, you know, Pan-African, you know, sensibilities and how we're all one people still, even if we are dispersed, you know, because right. of this slave trade. And I was thinking, you know, sort of all of that um, sort of comes together when one thinks about, you know, the cultural legacy of a place like, you know, New Orleans. And I was wondering how, how is it for you to grow up, you know, in a family that, you know, like you all are like a legacy. <laughs> Like, how well, you know, I, no, we, we, my parents, because we grew up in very humble means, very, in Kenner, Louisiana, and my mother, and we're, all of us are more like my mother, actually, than my father, mm-hmm. in a certain respect. My father's really laid back, and my mother's the real, she's fiery, hmm. and she doesn't mess around, she don't, you know. She wouldn't take any wooden nickels, as they would say. That's an interesting cliche there. (laughs) But her intent was not to raise a family of musicians, but to raise uh, a family of of young men who would grow to be responsible adults, who would be educated and would have access to the information that they needed. And at that point, it was up to us. So I think given that information, Mm -hmm. my dad, who was... Again, very low key and just laid back. Had a great influence on us in the way that he sh- certainly had a love for this music and a dedication. Mm-hmm. And as we grew into adulthood, it seemed to be, you know, uh, I think we all kind of felt that same love and, and compassion. And this is a great way to to express ourselves. Mm-hmm. So I would say the design, it's kind of been written up as though the design was, we're going to be the Jacksons of Jazz. <laughs> 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 but that's not really how how it uh, it transpired. Mm-hmm. And I often give credit to the high school I went to, the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts, mm-hmm. which is, you know, we're really the only family of musicians that went to that particular school. Mm-hmm. And that's where every musician you know out of New Orleans mm-hmm. after 1975 went to that school. Uh-huh. So the Nevilles didn't, hmm. and I guess Kermit Ruffins would be the only exception. Hmm. But Kermit is more, you know, mm-hmm. locally known than, you know, he doesn't travel as much. But that's that's a choice. But at any rate, mm-hmm. Branford, Winton, Harry yeah. Connick Jr., Donald Harrison, Terrence Blanchard, mm-hmm. uh, you know, myself, Jason, uh, Trombone Shorty, 
Nicholas Payton, we all went to NOCA. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. You know, we, yeah. Yeah. And the school is a lot different now. They've become a multi-million dollar industry. So if they have to kind of lose the grassroots approach that really made it unique mm-hmm. and special. But that's that was the difference. That was the edge that we had. We were being trained on the college level in high school. Hmm. Yeah, that's excellent. And, uh, you know, I had like six people in my class. <laughs> hmm. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't even allow that today, you know. It was such a great, you know, it was like that was the student-to-teacher ratio, one to four, one to six. It's like, uh, you know, at any rate. Yeah. Uh, um, I would I would give the, the, the training more. I know it's it's better to say, oh, it's the first family of jazz. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't, that's not how I see it. <laughs> Yeah, and then also, also when I was there, because um, I, I was in New Orleans, like, really, like, I was there uh, for the conference, but I had been there a week earlier for Thanksgiving, because my family is, I was born in New Orleans and raised in California and San Francisco, and so that is most of the interview with Delphio Marcellus, um, about 20 minutes left, but we have our guests in the studio now, and we want to get right to that conversation that I mentioned was was coming up. And so we have in the studio, we have um, M.B. Hanif. Good morning. Yes, I am. Are you? Are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. My printer is being really noisy here. Oh, it's finished. Thank goodness. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, Brother Honey, for joining us to talk about jazz and um, and you know that as an art form and some of these wonderful um, musicians that you know and some of whom are no longer with us, like as I already mentioned, um, you know, uh, Brent, um, uh, Ellis Marcellus, and we were just speaking, um, playing an interview with his uh, son Delphio and. Uh, and then I just think about, you know, here locally, the great drummer, uh, Donald Duck Bailey. I was, I was like, oh, yeah, I had some of his music in, in my uh, um, in my studio playlist. And um, and then we have also in the air, Charles Curtis Blackwell, a frequent guest. Good morning, Charles. How are you? Uh, okay. Uh, hello. Hello, everybody. Yes. <laughs> are you doing Blackwell? Yeah. This is Sunny. Yeah, yeah, I remember. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we have um, also really wonderful um, friend, neighbor, and uh, guest on the show, um, uh, Damu uh, Sudi Ali. Good morning, Damu. How are you? Good morning, Wanda. I'm doing fine. You know, anytime I'm talking with you and we're discussing discussing the kind of stuff we like to talk about, I'm doing great. You know, uh, good morning, <laughs> good morning, Hanif. Uh, yeah, such a are you doing? Such a wonderful way to wake up, you guys. So, um, yeah, yeah, I'm here, <laughs> president and accounting for. Cool, cool. So I thought, um, you know, this is um, Jazz Appreciation Month and Jazz Heritage and History as well, month. And so I, I asked um, Charles if he could share one of his poems to sort of 
kick off, you know, this this part of the program. So, Charles, go ahead. Tell us what you're going to share with us. Okay. Uh, an update on the flute. The magical Nicole Mitchell. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to exercise loving notes in between syncopated polyrhythms. Can serenade a Mississippi mule and cause it to be reborn and Read an entire cotton field of bow weevils in the mint flavor of musical tapestries. Nicole plays hard-driving love songs with thrusting measures and means, so I can feel the beat penetrating as if in between a sister's thighs, equal to that of a team of African tribal dancers. And I yell from the back of Cafe Blue, Pep, play it, baby, burn the floor, as she cracks the flute in half, breaking the sound barrier and causing the midnight Chicago wind to cease, as in peace, be still. Uh, wow. That's, that's it. so beautiful. That's all. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Is that a new one? Uh, no, uh, I was, uh, you, you all were talking about uh, New Orleans and, um, my friend in uh, Chicago, Arlene Crawford, uh, the artist, had introduced me to a bunch of people from uh, AACM, the Association for the Advancement of Creative Music, and uh, I wound up uh, meeting uh, Nicole Mitchell, the flute player, and uh, heard her perform. And um, it, it was uh, it's, it's an it's an incredible group of musicians. I mean, they it's like they're taking mu- uh, uh, music to another level. Mm, wow, that yes. beautiful. Yeah, that was really a beautiful piece. Thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, since um, we're talking about you right now, I'll just read your bio. And then, uh, Damu, if you could ask um, one of your lovely uh, children maybe to, to, email it to, to email it to me or something. I can't find it. Um, or you could just tell us about yourself when we get to that point. Uh, so Charles Curtis Blackwell is a jazz poet, painter, and playwright. Um, he's also the uh, the subject of this really wonderful wonderful uh, film by Jeff M. Um, how do you pronounce Jeff's last name, Charles? Uh, uh, Jeff uh, Giordano. Giordano, yeah, it's called The God Given Talent. Talent, and it's a really wonderful film if you haven't seen it. Um, it was a part of the uh, San Francisco Black Film Festival last year, and it's been making its tours in public libraries and other wonderful spaces. So, um, and I, it it might be available right at this moment. You might be able to um, actually get it online, but it's really, really wonderful. And uh, so, Charles was born in San Francisco in 1950. His lifelong love for jazz and blues has helped him overcome the obstacle of near blindness. He has published both nationally and internationally in a variety of magazines and publications, including the New York Times. Um, He has appeared on PBS television and has been the recipient of many local awards. He is the author of The Fiery Response to Love's Callings, Is the Color of Mississippi Mud, If a Pigeon Can't Fly, Blind Alley Cats Dream Jazz, and his more recent album release, Catch the First Thing Smoking. Charles's captivating performances reinvent the intriguing sound of jazz into transcendent poetry. Uh, Blackwell's poetry is 
suffused with soul, drenched with blues, and sparkled by jazz. His painting and drawing is likewise deep and personal. He is one of a handful of modern poets whose articulations of joy, pain, and insight always jump from the page and from his mouth when he reads his work before an audience. Charles Curtis Blackwell's paintings have been shown from coast to coast and have received multiple awards. In 2009, he was one of three featured artists at Lighthouse for the Blind's 20th Anniversary Insights exhibit in San Francisco. The show included over 20 of his works on paper, and the event and Blackwell's artwork were featured in the New York Times. Currently, he resides in Oakland, and he has organized writers' workshops and community cultural arts events for the Faithful Fools Agency and the Hospitality Community Arts Program in San Francisco Tenderloin Lauren neighborhood. And he also teaches um, at the, um, I'm drawing a blank, Charles. What's the name of the place where you, you work in Berkeley? It's called Youth Oh, Youth Spirit, Spirit Arts Work. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Just came to me. And um, and then, um, you, and, and presently you're doing some things at Youth Spirit. Why don't you tell our audience how they can uh, connect with Youth Spirit Arts Work because you all have a series uh, adapted for the um you know the the uh sheltering in place um that people can tune into um online uh okay uh we do a open mic once a month and it was with a with an audience uh at an art gallery so with the shelter thing uh, they tune in with the uh computer and you'd have to look up uh uh youth spirit artworks it's in Berkeley, and I don't know the call letters for the computer, uh, but uh, we did it this past weekend. We had Nanette, Nanette uh, Deeks, she's Native American, and another uh, uh, short story writer, uh, Mel- Melva Watts, and they were the two features, and we had uh, other uh, open mic poets on the, and it was, it was uh, you know, presented through the computer. It was, uh, it, it, it was okay. It was it, it, it worked out okay. I'm not really thrilled about you know sitting in front of a computer, but uh, could I add a couple of things? Uh, when I lived in D.C., we did a, a publication. We had a group called the Bulu Project, which meant which meant uh, it's a word from the Cameroon. It means to live again. And Kenny Carroll, Stephen Monroe, and we had a musician Billy Wright. We did a bunch of performances, and then uh, out of that, we did a book. Uh, collected some work from some other writers, uh, Wanda Winbush and uh, Jaron Johnson Haley and Stephen Monroe. And we did a, a publication called a Rejuvenation, Rejuvenation of a Beat, and it was uh, about jazz uh, uh, artists and poet, poetry about jazz. And um, right now, I've sent about 36 copies around the country, and I, I got a play that's looking for a home. This is, this is almost like an advertisement, but uh, I wrote this play. <laughs> and this, uh, Brian Kendrick's at Delta College in Stockton. He, I, I did a presentation over there, and he uh, said, why don't you uh, write a, a play about jazz uh, and what was taking place with the African-American in 1950 and the 1960s? And it's called uh, uh, When Struggle Gave Improvisation the Blues. So... It's a full-length, uh, you know, two-act uh, play, and it's uh, it's a poetry performance for the most part, and it's uh, it's about jazz, and it's about the music and what was taking place socially with the African Americans. So, uh, it's right now uh, one one theater play looking for a home, but 
it, it was like that. That was my interest. Uh, I'm not as heavy in the jazz as I, as I used to be because uh, I lived in D.C. and when I lived in D.C., the siren was running every uh, sometimes three minutes, five minutes. The police, the ambulance, the fire, and and I mean, which tells you about the intensity of what was going on. And so uh, it got to the point I, I couldn't listen to jazz. <laughs> Because it, mm-hmm. jazz, it's like it interprets the whole the whole story. It in, it interprets the the setting. It in, it interprets the environment. And uh, you know, I, I used to be a Hill Street Blues fan, and I lived in D.C. I, I couldn't watch Hill Street Blues because I had to sit real close. But uh, somebody had a TV, and I, I just had to walk away. I couldn't watch it because you walk out on the street, and it, it was there. It was right there in front of you. Hmm. Yeah. I don't so, know if anybody else. Haven't... Can anyone else? Can anyone else relate to that? <laughs> yeah. 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 Because yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's 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 really um, uh, uh, what the art form um, develops from uh, uh, concrete experience, and and so all of those, all of that pain, all of that um, uh, angst, and uh, uh, all of that joy, and everything you know is. It, is expressed in the music, but you know when you in the actual situation that produces that, you know it can be overwhelming. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. One of the things um, that's what uh, Ed Van Guard was about about uh, because Ed Van Guard expressed the trials and tribulations, especially of black people. And yes. Uh, and 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 and, and, and they, they called it and like God. Um I I had an experience with that about and thank God because um um I I I used to play uh what what is known as anti gods and uh, I didn't even know what it was but it it it, it reached me <laughs> so, so uh, and then I started playing chord changes, <laughs> and I knew how to play chord changes, you know. Yeah. So I'm going to read um, uh, M.B. Hanif's um, bio, and uh, before that, Charles, I know you you actually had an ensemble that um, you had a jazz band that performed with you, and I was wondering if you could. You know, tell us the name of the musicians that perform with you because um, I know the drummer, he's an ancestor now. Um, but as long as you could tell us that before I move on to um, to Brother Hanif. Uh, it was uh, Billy Billy Tolliver, the drummer. And uh, uh, and then he pulled uh, Lee Hester, who passed away, also a saxophone player. And then he pulled uh, he pulled this young this young brother, Julian Taylor, who was he was he was young. I mean, he was like uh, I think he was seventeen, but he was excellent uh, horn player, and, and and he had a note of humility about him too, because you know I thought he was gonna come up saying yeah what's yeah 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 what's up man. He he didn't do none of that, <laughs> you know. And uh, and he asked me. He said so you know how what would you like for me to play or what what, what style or, or what would you like me to play behind you. He wasn't, you know, just branching out to do, you know, just take off on some some craziness. And so uh, I told him, and and he said, oh, okay, so you like this? And I said, yeah. And I told him, well, 
but most of all, you know, just just have fun with it. And man, did he when when it was time for him to take off, he was gone, man. But he, I mean, he was gone in a good way, you know. And Billy told me said they had him at a club in San Francisco. He was supposed to be at home with at his grandmother's house at twelve o'clock, and they wouldn't let him go. They they kept him at the club, you know. And I guess they explained to his grandmother when he got home what happened. But uh, I think he he left. He left Oakland and wound up at Juilliard School of Music, and I, I haven't been in touch with him, you know. And then uh, he pulled the keyboard player. I can't remember the uh, what was that guy's name. Uh, he, the guy, the guy, the guy played country western music. <laughs> he, he, uh, Billy pulled him in, and the guy said, "Hey, this is great. I love this because he was playing abstract stuff on the piano." And he said, "Wow, I love this. This is great." <laughs> so, you know, it worked out real good. We did. Uh, me and Billy, we did. Uh, we did three CDs. And then me and uh, Brian Kendricks from Stockton, we the last CD I did was with Brian Kendricks. He's a jazz drummer, along with uh, uh, Vincent Corbell, another poet. And we, we, so we've been, you know, leaning on that one since then. And I just reproduced copies of the CD and try to, you know, get a nickel and a dime, whatever. But, uh, uh, you know, matter of fact, me and Brian, we're, we're talking about doing another one. So, uh, Anyway, that's that's where I'm at now. Mhm. Yeah. So, brother Hanif, you're you're from Houston, Texas, um, and you grew up in Los Angeles. You know, two great musical capitals. You know, in the nation. Um, you know, L.A. You know, from the migration, the great migration of our people. Um, but then Texas. Wow. A uh, lot of lot of um, lot of greats come out of Texas. Um, you know, you're you're in good company. <laughs> And you were raised yeah. by your grandfather and your step grandmother. You write in uh, uh, Sagan, uh, S E G U I N. I don't. How, to, is, how do you pronounce that? Mm-hmm. Sagan, Texas. Oh, Sagan, Sagan, Texas. No, okay. Sagan, Sagan, Sagan. Okay. Sagan, Texas. Okay. Yeah. Where is that at? I don't know that place. It's 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 about thirty miles out of San Antonio. Okay. 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 Uh-huh. Yeah. And then. Mhm. Right. And then mm-hmm. you and then you went to live with your mother in Los Angeles when you were eleven, yeah. and you graduated from Manual Arts High School, I guess there. And you you write that your your grandfather bought you an alto saxophone when you were ten, and you were given mm-hmm. private lessons. Um, you were really mm-hmm. drawn to that instrument right away. You write, and in middle mm-hmm. school, your band teacher chose you out of over 30 other band members to go on an overnight trip to another city and participate in a music contest. Mm -hmm. And that you were in the marching band and you were involved also in track and basketball. And you attended Los Angeles City College where you met your first wife and connected with um, other notable musicians like Leon um, uh, Ndugu um, Chandler, Patrice Russian, and Nate Morgan, among others. And um, and that during that period you were really involved in music, and then you studied at UCLA and majored in philosophy, and you played music there, and you were part of this really major concert at UCLA, and there were many notable people in attendance like Abby Lincoln, um, Kwame Ture, you know, um, his first, also known as Stokely Carmichael, and Miriam Akiba, and when the concert ended, Abby Lincoln, you say, uh, came backstage and told you that. This is your birthday bash, and you later mm-hmm. went on to establish a group you called um, the uh, is it EC? I will see. How do you put it? Say it again. I will see. 
Aussie. Oh, that. Okay, I think that's spelled wrong. Aussie experience. And mm-hmm. uh, and then Abby Lincoln, um, Bob Ray, and Oscar Brown were all a part of that group. And you played at many uh, well-known venues, such as the Hollywood Palladium, which was a benefit for Bangladesh, where um, you met your per- current wife, uh, Sister Lola, um, 46 years, I guess. You've been married 46 years. That's that's very significant. Congratulations. And that's where she also yeah. heard you perform for the first time. <laughs> and um and there were other, you know, really well known folks on that bill, um, like Taj Mahal and Stevie Wonder. And uh and you write that you cut your teeth on at the Fifth Street Dicks and the World Stage in Los Angeles. And so, um you met Sister Lola in nineteen seventy three, so I guess this was in nineteen seventy three. And then you all moved to Seattle, uh, in nineteen eighty, and during that time you sort of put on another creative hat. And you were a video production producer, and uh, you did video production, and you were a producer. And you later formed your own company, and you produced projects such as the Tuskegee Experience, Dare to Fight, Dare to Win, uh, Expo 86, which was a world fair in Vancouver, Canada. And during this exposure, you you later started secured a project which was funded by Sony about Spud Webb, which um, you were the producer. It was called Reach for the Skies and is still being viewed on YouTube and has received over 7,000 views at this time. So it's called Reach for the Skies, so you can look that up. And because of your exposure to Spud Web Project, Jackie Jr. Kersey's husband, Bob Kersey, asked you to do a video project on his wife. And these videos were carried by major video stores. Um, you later joined a par- partnership with Rashid Bahati, and you produced the first official video documentary about Dr. Malana uh, Karenga, who um, founded Kwanzaa. Um, and uh, you say you eventually went back to music in 1993, and you're still playing to this day after moving to the Bay Area 25 years ago. And you performed at notable places here in the Bay Area, such as, uh, I don't know how to pronounce the name of that jazz bistro. How do you say that? It's French. Bichelines. Yejuline Jazz Bistro and Rosala's Jazz Club. Um, I think Rosala's closed, but yeah, both are in San Francisco. And the 57th Street Gallery in Oakland, which also closed, which is really sad. Those great venues, um, I think the restaurant is still there, and people will be able to um, go there eventually when we could do that again. So um, thank you so much um, for joining us, uh, Brother Hanif. Um, And and Brother... um, uh, Damu, did did you send me anything? Uh, uh, no, I didn't. Uh, you know, wonder because uh, you know uh, one thing. <laughs> you know, when you asked me to uh, have one of my children send you um, my my bio, it just occurred to me. Uh, uh, you know, something that I've been I've been kind of like uh, uh, talking about uh, for uh, uh, some time about how there's no continuity uh, in in our. Um, uh, uh, in our work uh, as 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 artists, you know, and and you know, I help children, and and so did Kamal, but um, you know, uh, it's not like our children uh, that uh, involved, you know, without without what we do, and 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 that's uh, sad commentary, and but I'm having to say it because um, you know uh, it's evident in the fact that 
no one's playing Brother Kamau's music right now. And Kamau was mm-hmm. one of the most prolific and, and talented uh, uh, jazz composers, um, I think, in the Bay Area. You know, the brother wrote such wonderful music and nobody's getting a chance to play it. But anyway, nobody has my, uh, <laughs> nobody in my family has my, uh, my bio, but I found it. As I was looking for it, I found it. Oh! I'm sorry? Oh, that's great. Good. Yeah, and, and this is pretty much what I sent you. It's a, it's a, it's a bio that was written up, up, uh, up by the publicist for the Bryant, Texas Blues uh, Festival that I uh, was a featured artist in in, in uh, 2013, I think it was. Uh, it, the top performer was Don Ray Johnson, who was the Grammy uh, Award-winning, uh, uh, he was a Grammy Award-winning drummer with the group Taste of Honey in, uh, in 1978, I think it was. And actually, Donald and I... Uh, uh, toured with a band called uh, uh, Mint Juleps uh, before he joined the uh, uh, Taste of Honey. So um, that'll be mentioned in the uh, in this uh, in this bio. Uh, but this is the bio that was written by the publicist for that festival. Uh, Bryant, Texas Blues Festival performer Damu Ali, pianist, composer, and arranger. Uh, Damu Sudi Ali's career spans more than forty years, playing blues. Rhythm and blues, jazz, gospel, and classical music, and bands, ensembles, and choirs in Sacramento, Los Angeles, the San Francisco Bay Area, and other cities throughout California and the nation. Damu began playing overtures and John Philip Sousa marches on trombone in Bryant, Texas, at age 15, in the Kemp High School marching band and concert bands under the leadership of band director, Dr. Wayman Webster. Later, Damu became the leader of the Kemp High School dance band and began playing blues and jazz. While in the United States Air Force, Damu used the music theory he had learned from Dr. Webster to switch from trombone to jazz piano. In uh, in 1966, Damu joined tenor saxophonist Ross Hardy forming the award-winning uh, Latin jazz band, The New Sound, at Mesa Air Force Base in Sacramento. After service, while attending Texas A&M, Texas A&M University in College Station, Damu was called to play Fender Rhodes electric piano with the nationally recognized Clarence Pinckney band called the Mint Julius. Following the Mint Julius, Damu played organ for the Los Angeles-based jazz group, the Geechee Smith All-Stars, led by trumpeter Geechee Smith, formerly of the 1930s and 1940s Jimmy Lunsford Orchestra, primarily New York's uh, Cotton Club. In 1979, Damu moved to Oakland and became musical director and pianist for the Stones of Fire Reggae Gospel Choir. In 1996, Damu joined former Kemp schoolmate Robert Green, Setuayo, to record a jazz version of the Black National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing. This band eventually became the Moja Jazz Collective, appearing at the 2003 Malcolm X Jazz Festival in Oakland and the 2007 Fillmore Jazz Festival of San Francisco. 
In 2001, Damu composed, arranged, and produced the title song Blessings for Umoja's first CD, released on B Natural Records. In October 2011, the Umoja Jazz Collective released its second CD entitled Dance of the Kalahari. Currently, Damu has a legendary uh, presence as performer and ultimate music professional on the national blues and jazz scenes teaches music theory and travels widely, sharing what he first learned at Bryan, Texas, nearly 60 years ago. Continuing his music career with Hanif and the Sound Voyages, uh, the first in, in, edition jazz ensemble, Larry Douglas Altet, and other uh, bands that he has played with as he plays freelance uh, jazz throughout the Bay Area. Uh, just feels kind of funny, you know, saying those things about yourself that she wrote about me, <laughs> especially the international presence. I mean, national presence and all of that. But that's it, pretty much. I, I, the only thing that I would uh, 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 emphasize uh, uh, about this uh, bio is that uh, th- how uh, important Dr. Wayman Webster was in, in my development as a jazz musician. He was truly uh, uh, my greatest uh, in music. Um, uh, he uh, just shepherded me through um, uh, the whole process of, of becoming a jazz musician, taught me about chords and harmony and all of that uh, in, in, in high school so that when I uh, had an accident and couldn't play trombone anymore um, because of an injury I sustained playing football, I was able to use, as the Bible says, all that knowledge that he taught me to basically teach myself how to play piano. That's how I became a piano player because uh, I couldn't play trombone anymore. And uh, I became a, a, a piano player. And, and then there's just the, um, the presence in my life uh, uh, as a musician. Throughout the time I was developing as, as a jazz musician, uh, of just outstanding jazz uh, mus- uh, musicians and people who helped me to, to develop one of those people in high school who uh, eventually uh, became a, a, a mentor to uh, Hanif as well, uh, Fred Gene Smith, um, tennis saxophone player who worked with uh, Stoke, uh, not Stoke, but um, uh, um, the brother uh, Smokey Robinson. I think he was music director for Smokey Robinson. But one year, uh, Fred was the uh, practice teacher at um, Kemp High School, and the, the that the knowledge that he shared with me um, was phenomenal. And it, you know, it just, along with what Dr. Webster was teaching me, helped me to really grow as a jazz musician. And then my time that I... Excuse me, excuse me, Damu. Um, Uh um, You're going on a little bit too long, and and we don't have a lot of time. So, um, and I really want, I want to talk about, like, what is jazz music, you know, and and about some of these ancestors that are no longer with us, um, you know, some of whom you might have mentioned in in your talking, you know, about, you know, your own development in the music. So the question, um, and also I need to ask everyone to, like, um, you know, speak from your heart, but be brief, because we only have half an hour left. Okay. No, we have... Um, and then, and then, you know, <laughs> we can't go over any more, any further. So I really want to have an opportunity for you all to, like, you know, really explore, explore what it means to be um, a part of this tradition, you know, um, which, 
it's it it's almost seems like you know like the music sort of reflects black life and i saw a film about that you know how you know uh this improvisation of music which um you know max roach did not call jazz and a lot of other artists don't call it that um that term because of the origins of the term and we don't necessarily have to go into that unless you want to um you know in your in your response to the to the question so what is um what is what you play and um what you know sort of like um the improvisation of music jazz so the talk talk about the art form and we can go around so um brother Hanif, why don't, why don't you start talking about this music and this form that calls you and and again you know uh, i really wanted to um to have to hold space for our you know um artists that have just made their transition you know like McCoy Tyner and Ellis Marcellus and and others who whose name I'm not names I'm not calling but who are also you know part of that that tradition that we can no longer you know who 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 have made their transition which means we can no longer like touch them you know in this in this particular realm so brother Hanif you can start yes Number one, number one um, Biddy Higgins and Harold Mann in L.A., Biddy Higgins, um, the great jazz drummer, he, uh, uh, he recorded, uh, he recorded um, 800 jazz uh, recording as well. And Harold Mann Jr. was really significant and marvelous too. Uh, I didn't mention that in my bow, but uh, and Fistic Dicks and the World Stage, which really found the World Stage, it was really where I really cut my, what I call, I cut my teeth, you know. So I want to say this is, this is music is, is really a part of my life and I've said Allah, God, my wife and music has been the 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 influences of my life as well. So I wanna put that out there and I wanna say the music you know uh this is a national out we're talking about jazz. That's what it is. And 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 it starts from the um, the fields in in slavery and then it, it, it went to the blues and then jazz. And uh, this is this is something that we need to uh especially black people, uh, Understand that this is this is a jazz, or the word called jazz. You know, Duke Ellington and Miles Davis said they didn't like the word called jazz. You know, so it it, it is a, a national outform as well. I want I want to say that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Charles. Can I? Yeah, uh, yeah. He he mentioned that was just the name I was thinking of was. Uh, uh, Duke Ellington, uh, you know, 
I, I remember uh, I missed Duke Ellington. I wanted to catch him live. I had a chance, and I, I didn't have the money. I couldn't. I, I was young, high school, and couldn't get to the performance. But uh, it was a book I read, and it, it coincided just with what he said. Uh, you know, Duke, Duke Ellington, he would be on uh, uh, Ed Sullivan. I'd, oh, wow, I'd catch him on Ed Sullivan. Or if you listen to him, sometimes he would speak or say something on his albums. He didn't sound militant, but let me tell you, underneath that 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 uh, image that he presented, there was like a militant side to Duke Ellington, and he was uh, uh, just what he said. He didn't. I'm, I'm not playing jazz. I'm I'm playing. Uh, I'm not sure if he called it liberation music or black black people's music or something like that. It was almost like he was ahead of he was ahead of uh, everybody else, you know, and and maybe by him. You know, he he did high school, Washington, D.C., and then, and things kind of fell in place with him. He organized the orchestra, you know. Next thing you know, he wound up at the Cotton Club, which was, you know, was it was in, in Harlem, but it was segregated, and blacks couldn't come in and sit down, but you could perform. And being in a situation like that is enough to, you know, uh, 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 create some anger on the inside because, you know, you, you're almost doing this uh, shuffle your feet, bow, and get along. But the, the opportunity was that it created an opportunity for Ellington because there was a radio broadcast that put him out there to the whole country. Okay, so he played it, but he I don't think he really enjoyed, you know, the idea, you know, I'm playing in a segregated club. But And, and his militancy came out when he started defining the music with that, that he was playing. And uh, I, I think he managed to, what did he say, uh, he managed to be smooth and get along with all people and, and take his music around the world. But underneath that, underneath that nice dress and that, and that, uh, you know, persona that he presented, man, there, there, there was a militancy inside of Ellington. <laughs> That's really Yeah. I agree that. Uh, Damu, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Um, so Damu, I was wondering if you could talk about um, maybe, uh, you know, sort of, how you, how you define the music that you play, um, and maybe uh, you know since you you know you're on piano now, maybe you could talk about some of the uh, the uh, pianists that that you um, that you listen to and that you admire. Okay, I'll try and uh, do that in a brief way because I have such strong feelings about both of those things you said. Um, oh, good. You asked about. Uh, but uh, in terms of the music itself, and and the word jazz, yeah, I, I'm uh, uh, don't like the word. It has negative connotation, um, and 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 a lot of jazz musicians have have disputed the term, uh, notably Charles Mingus, Duke um, uh, Ellington, uh, you know, uh, two other people who don't who don't, who don't like that term because it has uh, negative connotations and. Classical, black classical music has been suggested. The great uh, um, jazz drummer Randy Weston says he calls it uh, uh, spiritual music and and rhythmical uh, and rhythm, rhythmic uh, something or, uh, something that has to do with rhythm. Uh, <clears throat> anything other than jazz. Um, but my own feelings about what jazz is, you know, uh, basically comes from uh, uh, how it has manifested in my life and, and how I hear it and what I feel uh, it um, expresses. Um, the great uh, uh, writer, um, Amiri Baraka, a.k.a. Leroy Jones, 
said in his book, uh, Blues People, that all uh, legitimate jazz is based on the blues. And I, I take that to be very true because that, that the blues, it's just, um, you know, it has uh, pretty much all the elements that would be used later on to expand jazz and make it into what they call progressive jazz, bebop, and, and all of that stuff. It was already there in the blues. And, of course, the blues was uh, uh, expressing the angst and the, and the, um, uh, the, the, the terror, the uh, struggle of black people in this country. Um, so all of that uh, got expressed in the blues, and jazz was, jazz was based on that. My, my other uh, feeling about what jazz is is um, because of the tremendous amount of disagreement among jazz musicians themselves about jazz, and there is, um, uh, I, I call it a kind of abstract philosophy, really. It's an abstract philosophy in which the practitioners get a chance to express their philosophy about life, their experience in life, and, 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 and so forth, just like uh, uh, Santayana and... Uh, 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 Plato and uh, you know the other uh, philosophers. Um, jazz is an abstract philosophy um, that uh, allows you to do that. Just the whole idea of the solo with being the most prominent part and element of jazz. You know the solo testimony, like when people testified in church. You get up and you give your testimony. So um, <laughs> that's that's my view about the, the, the music. Uh, but in terms of the, the jazz uh, pianists who influenced me, of course, uh, 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 more than anybody, McCoy China, the, 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 uh, our good brother who just passed on, um, and primarily because he played with Coltrane. And, and to me, uh, my goodness, Coltrane was a personification of, uh, of a, uh, a jazz musician who uh, – saw the light and, and, and took the jazz out of the purely secular um, kind of music and, and took it to a, another realm, another uh, uh, level, if you would, uh, to uh, sacred music. Uh, John Coltrane's music became uh, sacred, and jazz is hardly an, uh, an appropriate term for his music. Uh, <clears throat> so um, McCoy Tainer, and and before McCoy McCoy Chainer, uh, um, Herbie Hancock, uh, uh, Oscar Peterson, uh, my goodness, and of course Horace Silver. Um, so you know, just uh, quite a few uh, uh, jazz musicians that I uh, uh, pianists, jazz pianists that I really listen to. But more than anybody, McCoy Chainer. Ah, thank you. That was beautiful. Um, other um, comments um, around around the topic uh, or personal I was, stories. Uh, mm-hmm. I was uh, this is me, Charles, and I. Uh, uh, there, there's a film. It's a documentary. It's about Martin Luther King, and it's from. Uh, it's called From uh, Montgomery to Memphis, and uh, they have a scene in there where the uh, the church is bombed in Birmingham. And they're, they're 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 putting the bodies on gurneys, or taking them out of the church into the uh, to, to load them on an ambulance. 
of the you know the, the four girls that were murdered at the at the church from this bombing, and it and in the film the documentary, they use Cold Train's piece Alabama. Oh yeah. man, it oh man, it just it's like it just hits you with that with with Cold Train's piece in in, in the background is there uh, bringing these bodies out. Man, it just it just I mean it just yeah. made it just hits you like yeah. like a a solid punch, you know. And and it's like Coltrane yeah. is just interpreting his music is interpreting the whole thing, you know. The it's almost yeah. interpreting the movement, the anger, the the strife, the sorrow. He, I mean, he got he had it all, and maybe that's what what do you call it, black classical music? Maybe maybe that's what it does because it is ours. It's, it's our music. I mean, and yeah. other people are welcome to play it, but this is ours. <laughs> <laughs> it's really great. It's really great that you said that. Yeah, you want to continue? Uh, why is why is it really great that he said that? What what are your um, thoughts, um, Brother Hanif? Well, you know, it's he said it's our music, and it is. Um, it's it's you know, it's 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 um, uh, it's indescribable indescribable what it is. Because I don't have the words to make make it real, because it is our music, and so so that's 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 I want to emphasize that it's our music, you know, um, that's what I want to say about that. Maybe uh, could I relate this? I was uh, this was years ago, years ago, and. Uh, I was in Sacramento and I'd come down to San Francisco and the Keystone corner was, was in San Francisco. And, um, and, and this is where the line is drawn because uh, this brother was on stage. I don't know who it was. He was playing saxophone. He was solo and uh, he was playing. And, and this brother was at the bar and, and he yelled out, that's right. Play it brother. Yeah, that's right. Play it. Okay. <laughs> and I was like, I-, I could relate. I could relate. You know, uh, they called for the what he called the the bouncer, grabbed the brother at the bar and threw him out of the club. And uh, I, I was gonna get up and leave, but I you know paid. And it was somebody that's coming on bill. I can't remember who was coming on the the other other person. And I wanted to stay and catch that person. But I started to get up and leave. I was so angry because they threw this man out of the club. Okay, and uh, I remember. When I lived in D.C., it was this club. It was called Club uh, uh, Lanice, Lanice. And um, the trumpet player was named Cameron Brown, and and uh, uh, Nat uh, Turner would show up from the radio station. He would sing. You know, the waitresses, the waitresses were dancing, bringing the drinks, dancing with the drinks. People were yelling and screaming, me included. We were playing, Brad, burn the flow, really. That's right, that's right. Hey, man, you know, and that's what, it, it, it was like you was at church. I mean, Cameron mm. Brown would have the place rocking, you know. But, you know, to be somewhere and they're going to grab, because at a certain point, that's where this is ours. And they don't understand it. They don't understand. It. They don't get it, you know. And they sitting there. They could sit there like stiff. Oh, that's such a wonderful note. That's not what it's all about. But, and they say to themselves, well, be quiet and all that. No, get out of here. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, I'll leave. I'll get up and leave. It's got to be that stiff. Let me get out of here. I pay my money and I'll leave. Because 
hey, this is ours, and this is what this is how we relate to it. Brother Hanif, or rather Damu, you wanna? We're having a conversation now. Well, yeah. Um, uh, just for, uh, you know, can continue with that. Then uh, it's our music. Uh, because the the main uh, uh, innovators, the people who, uh, who who invented the genre, uh, were black. Uh, you know, it's very clearly that they even acknowledged that. You know, the major uh, uh, musicologists and the people writing about jazz, uh, even uh, uh, Gunther Schuller, who is notoriously, uh, you know, a revisionist in terms of writing about jazz. Uh, you know, and and downplaying our um, uh, 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 contributions to this music, but even Gunther Schuller, uh, along with uh, uh, um, Hearns, uh, the brother who wrote the story of jazz, which was praised so much by uh, Duke Ellington, all uh, say that you know black people invented this music. Uh, the 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 very uh, elements that they divide the music into testify to that. Uh, uh, in his book, Story of Jazz, talks about how the music has that uh, uh, that special spark that no other music has. That rhythmic spark is what he calls it, uh, and you know that's notoriously African. That's the African rhythms. Um, yeah. I remember listening to a, 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 a um, an album uh, that uh, featured the evolution of the blues. Uh, it, uh, I've got the, the, the uh, or the evolution of the jazz, but it started off. Uh, the first uh, 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 piece on the album was by uh, 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 some people called the Fra Fra Tribesmen. That's F R A F R A Fra Fra Tribesmen in in uh, somewhere in West Africa, and they were singing praise songs, you know, and uh, you know, totally uh, different from jazz, totally African, but you could hear the blues in it. You could hear the blues in it. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm, you, you you could hear the soul in it, you know. Mm-hmm. And it and, and evolved from that all through Brian Brian Williams uh, Jefferson, uh, Sonny Williamson, uh, Bobby Blue Bland, all the way up uh, uh, from the blues uh, to the jazz. That's the way the music has developed. And the and the musicologists, uh, the other term they use to describe the music is blue tonality. The blue notes that are played in jazz. Jazz musicians changed the whole diatonic scale. That's what they did. You know, uh, they and and they changed that scale by flatting the third, uh, the fifth, yes. and the seventh uh, of the diatonic scale. And you can hear that sound. Black people did that. Yes. And and notoriously, uh, uh, um, uh, um, Marcia Stearns also writes about this in his, in his book that tells. Uh, Kind of maybe where, how that uh, the genesis of that uh, of black musicians doing that because he writes about how this uh, uh, African folklorist you know they didn't use the term African musicologists isn't that something they had to use a term that, that seemed less sophisticated he called a brother uh, African folk folklorist traveling with a European musicologist right you yeah, know? exactly. You know, where, where the African brother, he was a musicologist too. My goodness, you know, but they call him folklore. But anyway, uh, the story is that these uh, they were um, they got together 
and and Africa at uh, uh, some point. I don't know when that happened, uh, but there, it was the first time that the uh, the African musicologists had ever uh, sat down and 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 actually played on a a piano, you know. And uh, and when he played the piano. And when the uh, the uh, uh, when he played the piano, and when the uh, European musicologist told him this is the C scale, and he played the C scale, which is all white notes beginning on on C on, on the exactly. piano, so you play from one C to the next C high up. When he played the scale, he said, "My goodness, man, that don't sound right." And he said, "That sounds like something missing from that scale," you know. And the, and the white music white musicologist said, "Well, no, that's what it is. That's what it is, you know." And so, uh, as he experienced playing that scale, he found out that in order to adapt the Western instrument to express mm-hmm. what, what black people feel, how they mm-hmm. hear music, you had to flat the third, you had exactly. to, and you had to flat the seventh, and later mm-hmm. on. With the innovation of jazz musicians like uh, 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 um, the brother that uh, Hanif loves so much, and I love too, Wayne Shorter. <laughs> well, Wayne Shorter was a prolific, prolific composer, and and Wayne yes. Shorter was notorious in his in, in his compositions for the flatted third, the flatted fifth, yes. the flatted yes. seventh. Uh, Wayne Shorter yes. started flatting everything. The flatted ninth. <laughs> <laughs> the flag turned. <laughs> everything. So, so, so you know, we we invented the music. They, they what, do you, what do they call that when uh, they start flattening all those notes? They call them the blues scale. There's a, a, yes. a blues yes. scale that uses those yes. uh, those flatted notes. And 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 black people did that because they didn't like the way uh, you know because they placed them uh, some something that was a significantly a departure from the melodic and harmonic uh, tradition of European music. Yes. And that was what they ended up calling jazz. Well wow. stated. Damu, well stated. Yeah, that was excellent. So I was wondering, um, Damu, if you could play us what the flatted sound like, the flatted three, third, fifth, seventh, ninth. Could you play the flatted um, okay. I'll tell you uh, what each one of these scales are. First of all, I'll begin with the diatonic scale, which is another name for the uh, European uh, um, uh, major scale. And, and, and it's not European, European at this point. You know, everybody else adopted the same rules, you know, uh, the same rules of notation and, and everything. Uh, but, the, but the diatonic scale, the major scale, uh, is, uh, sounds like this. You know, it's the classic do re mi fa so la ti do. You know, that's what it is. And, and here it is. Well, come on, piano. You hear that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's that's the that's the major uh, major scale. Now now what uh, the black the uh, musicians did first. They flatted the third and the seventh, and when they did mm-hmm. that, they came up with something called uh, uh, the uh, um, uh, um, I forget the name of it, uh, 
oh my goodness. Uh, anyway, the first uh, 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 notes that they flatted was the third and the seventh. Now, when you do mm-hmm. that, this is the scale that you that you come up with. Mm-hmm. Totally different sound. Totally different. Mm-hmm. And, and, mm-hmm. and and later later they progress from that to what's called the uh, uh, Aeolian uh, or um, the uh, um, uh, natural minor scale, and this is the mm-hmm. C natural minor scale where you not only flat the third and the seventh, but you flat the sixth as well, and that's this scale. Already, you can tell how that music, uh, the sound is is, is is changing so much from. <laughs> that's the major scale. Whole another whole uh, uh, sound, whole another um, feeling. Uh, you know, I don't know if you guys knew, but I'm pretty sure you could hear that. And and then <laughs> later on. They came up with the blues scale, and and this is the blues scale where they flat they, they flat the third, the fifth, and the seventh. The C blues mm-hmm. scale is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's what black people did to the music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I was just wondering, you know, the whole idea of flattening something, you know, um, and then flatten everything is what you said, Damu, um, with regards to Wayne Shorter. Um, and I was just wondering sort of the metaphysical aspect of of this, this whole, you know, way of approaching, you know, music. Um, and, and also, you know, if you're thinking about blues, there are these stories, you know, you're thinking about the field hollers. It's, a lot of times it was about getting through you know, whatever that task was, which was not necessarily a liberating one. And then, you know, we've got the Negro spirituals, and that was all about, you know, codes and getting free and things like that. I was just wondering sort of if any of you all have thought about sort of the metaphysics metaphysics of how do you do this, you know, like the flattening, the whole idea of flattening something, which means it's more like leveling it, you know, sort of getting things back to a place where everyone can have the same opportunity, even. Mm. Um, well, go ahead, you guys. Go ahead. Is a, uh, a, I, I was. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Who? Well, uh, um, who, well who, who, yeah. Brother I, I mean, did you want to say something? Um, oh, okay. Well, I I was listening to this thing of uh, uh, Cecil Taylor. And uh, <laughs> he gets in, gets into this philosophical thing of uh, time and space and the earth, exactly. and uh, and then his music is it's like it's really abstract. And mm-hmm. me being an artist, you know, it's mm-hmm. easy to to listen to it and you could ponder or meditate, you know. And and it's almost like standing at a subway station in New York City. The music in the backdrop, you know, kind of paints the picture, you know. Uh, this real abstract setting. So, you know, in that sense, I could see the, like you're talking about the metaphysical side, the philosophical side, because, uh, you know, it's, it, it just, it's, it takes it to a deep, deep understanding. And 
uh, like we were saying earlier, to interpret the society or, you know, interpret the environment. Because cause how do we, you know, how, how do we live in this mess? How do we how do we survive in this chaos that's in a, and then when we look at it from a black perspective, uh, you know, how is it, how, how is it that we're still here? You know, only by the grace of God, because this this is a, it's a bunch of madness living in this country. <laughs> it's it's a, you know, we we don't want to, don't want to, you know, some people go around like, uh, oh, oh, what's the matter with you? Uh, I'm very positive, and and you know, next thing you know, they find themselves on the on on the wrong highway with a clan waiting for them. You know, and they they were somebody was so positive, they were so positive. You know, and I mean, and anybody that's dealing with the truth. And you, you a black person, it's like Eugene Redmond says, uh, he said, for white America, uh, the American dream is a reality. He said, for black America, it's a nightmare. <laughs> so that's <laughs> the truth of the whole matter, you know. So dealing with this, you know, and like, look right now. We're in this situation with this corona. It's done changed names, too. Like, jazz changed his name now. To, it was the corona. It was something. Now it's got, I'm, you know, okay, we got a plague. Okay, let's let's just forget it. It's a plague. But look who's taking the big bite. Look who's getting the big death toll, you know. And I, I, didn't, I didn't think it would happen like that. And it turned out uh, Amy Goodman was interviewing, interviewing the doctor, Dr. Jones. And, and Amy, Amy Goodman, I really like her because he gives black people, allow them to say what, what needs to be said. And she, says, she actually says, well, what, what, why do you think, uh, why is it that it's a large number of, of African Americans that's dying from this corona? And Dr. Jones says, because of racism. And so, you know, no matter what, we're still dealing with this social thing that exists in this country. And so jazz or black classical music is, is steadily interpreting it and almost, you know, giving us that uh, metaphysical, the, the metaphor, the spiritual to say, okay, this will help you to cope. This will help you to cope and, and exist. Because you know, right. otherwise... Yeah. You know, we'll all go crazy and, and, and do something, man. You know, we'll all go crazy, and man. I mean, how many of us could be a, a Nat Turner, you know? Uh, well, well, uh, not, it, it was actually Will that did the killing. But, but I'm just saying, I mean, we could do that. But it's like we have to get to that spiritual place. And sometimes jazz helps, helps us to get there. Uh, I, I was, uh, Steve Gundy was performing at this little cafe in Sacramento. And I did some poetry with him. Steve Gundy was a horn player. And this young dude walked by and he said, "What is this?" I said, "Man, why don't you come on in? This, this, this is this is our music." He was he was young, you know. He said, "Man, I ain't never heard nothing like this." I said, "Man, this is our music. This black people, this is jazz, man. This is us." I mean, I was using the term then. And the dude was taken. He was really taken by it. He never he never heard a musician, an African American, playing our music on stage. And this young man was knocked off his feet. And so. When I'm doing the writers' workshops at the agency in Berkeley, I'm, I, I start. Sometimes I'll bring in some some jazz pieces and put it on. I say, okay, we're going. It's a free write. Write what you want to write. And I mean, one day this guy said, "Man, I ain't never. Who's that?" I said, "Man, that's Coltrane. You never heard of Coltrane? Nah. What's the name of that?" It really caught his attention. So that's where we're at in terms of you know taking this something and and reaching some of these young minds. Because I tell you, you know, it, I'm, I'm amazed when it. Their, their heads are turned around, listening to something. You know, they're so busy listening to this stuff about I'm a bad uh, uh, MF or don't don't f with me or I can take you out and and you'll be free because you'll be dead and I'll be you know and on and on and then I said wait a minute man get out of here get out of here you know 
because you listen to jazz, as, as rough as the environment is, it's still giving us some kind of hope. Exactly. A- amen. Amen, yes. brother, to all of that. So, uh, I, 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 definitely, I definitely see that in, 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 at, at the school where I was teaching. Yeah, at the school where I was teaching, you know, I was very frustrated that the children, even the bright ones, even the talented ones, you know, when I would tell them, yeah, you know, uh, you know, you guys make some suggestions uh, of music to practice. You know, try to get to try and get them interested. Uh, you know, after teaching them the, the blues first, that was the first thing I would teach them in a jazz class. Uh, but after mm-hmm. teaching them that, I say, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I'm into uh, uh, listening to some 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 su- suggestions from you guys uh, of music uh, that we can practice and play and learn. And you know, unfortunately, a lot of the suggestions I was getting was white music. No, no, uh, no suggestions mm. for for black mm-hmm. music. You know, mm-hmm. and, and this is this is at a school. Uh, uh, this is at a school where um, uh, it is very Afrocentric. The school Eli mm. uh in 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 East Oakland. That's a very Afrocentric uh, institution. But still, mm-hmm. they were coming up with stuff. Oh, uh, Baba Damu, I like this song by Ade. Uh, isn't that her name? Uh, Adele or something like that. You know that that yeah. lady. Yeah, yeah. They they were coming up with stuff like that, and uh, <laughs> you know it, it was just very. And then I, I, at one point, in, in the context of ha- having this kind of discussion with my uh, uh, students, um, I you know told them you know, about the rich legacy of jazz and that we had invented the music and it was a, an original art form. And some people say the only original art form that came from the United mm. States of America. Mm. And, uh, yeah. and I was, uh, I was reprimanded for saying that by one of my students who accused mm. me of being racist, you know, <laughs> just, because, just because I was trying to say that black people invented the music, you know, he was so, lost. He was, he was lost. Well, that's why I'm telling that story. That's, that, I'm just piggybacking on what you said. You know, that's yeah. that's how far we are divorced from and, and ignorant of uh, our music and our culture and exactly. and, 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 the, and the importance yeah. of it. Yes, a lot, a lot, a lot of people don't know it, but uh, uh, Congressman uh, Kanye's from uh, Detroit. You know, he introduced that bill. And they made it a uh, jazz uh, national music, uh, a national uh, treasure, you know. Okay, part of the reason that he did that because, you know, Japan, Japan was going to take it and make it their music, you know. They uh, like they, you know, take the camera and take the yeah. take it apart and reinvent and, and reinvent a better camera, right? Okay, so they said, and and somebody told me, uh, I think it was my friend uh, uh, James Martin used to be West Coast Regional Director of the NAACP. He said. Uh, Japan, they said they really didn't know that that black people invented jazz. You know, I said uh, I don't believe it, man. I don't believe it because you know, but they were gonna make it their music, you know. And so, luckily, uh, uh, Kanye's jumped on it, and they it was a little small club in D.C. for a while, and it was it was named after that. I think it was House Representative Bill Fifty Seven or Fifty Six, something like that. And it was a it was a club uh, H H R Fifty Seven. I think that was it. I think that was the name. It was on 14th Street. I don't know if it's still there. You know, they had a, there's like a lot of, you know, a place that struggled to stay open, you know. Yeah. But, you know, Brother Charles, I can see how how that might have been the case, you know, uh, I, you know, that they didn't know that black people invented jazz. 
the white man has lied so much, and he has all the uh, <laughs> media, media and, and, and ways of transmitting those lies, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if, if, if the ignorance of jazz in the United States is, is where it's at, you can imagine how, you know, it will get uh, the, the word will get so um, uh, changed. And, and so it yeah. started by the time it gets to uh, by the time it gets to Japan, especially when you have the white man telling the story. <laughs> one one wow. thing I want to say. One other thing I oh. want to say. Um, um, the world stays in Los Angeles, and then it by Billy Higgins, the great jazz drummer, is. Is a national for black people is a national treasure as well, because because um, uh, and we we need to know about the world stage and it's still going on right now, and we we actually played there about two years ago, Damu. Uh huh. Yeah. And um, we played there, um, and 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 you know. The world stage is a, I think it's the national treasure of uh, the art form. Uh, oh, yeah. And, yes. And and yeah. we, we need to know that. We, we need to what, we need to what, you know, we need to know about the world stage. And I, I want Agreed. you to see, yes, I just want you to know that as well. Oh, yeah. Amen. Amen, man. Yes. You know. I mean, my wow, yeah, yeah. Well, so, I want to let you, know, you all know that um, that this is a really wonderful conversation, and I wish we could have got rolling a little sooner. But I actually have a class I need to uh, get to presently, so we'll have to. Um, would you like to continue this conversation um, at some other time, like a part oh, two? Of course, I'm, I'm learning a lot. <laughs> I'm learning a lot <laughs> listening to these brothers. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay. Well, we could do that. Um, why don't we say, why don't we say next week? Um, I'll confirm it with you. Um, but again, um, I have to. Um, I have a class at ten, so um, so I, we can't go over because I'm missing it right now. I'm looking at her because it's a Zoom class, of course. But I need to get into the classroom. So I just wanted to um, give you all an opportunity to sort of wrap it up um, in whatever way you like, whether that's with music or words or poetry. Um, so if you want to just wrap, and we could we could start with whomever, and then just continue on. Thank you so much, Wanda. That's, that's good. Okay. Well, I'd like to play just a little bit of uh, a tune by McCord Tainer. Just a little bit. Sure, go ahead. Okay, and then oh, Charles, um, do you want to do an, wait just a second? Um, and you can introduce it again, Damu. And Charles, do you want to um to do a, a poem, a closing poem? Uh, okay. Okay. Or or, or uh, you can do a comment and a and a poem, whatever you whichever way you like to do it. Okay, who 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 goes first? Uh, Me or gonna go first and then you're gonna follow okay. him. And then Brother Hanif, did you wanna play something? Like did you say you wanted to do something from um Kenny Garrett or, or something else? Um, you know, your 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 homage. Um did you wanna play something or not? Yes, I will. Okay, all right. So I'm gonna be multitasking. So you just flow into it, and I'm going to put myself on mute, okay? Okay. 
Yeah, I, and I just like to get some feedback from people just to uh, experiment. Oh, oh, but this is not Zoom. I, so anyway, I would like to get some feedback on on the quality of the sound. You know. Uh, oh well, we already this, said we already said well. Well, you have to get that offline. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> like I said, we like I said, we can hear you um, when you were playing. That's why I asked you to do the. Yes. Um, um, oh, you know okay. those the blue the blue scale, so we can hear oh, you. Oh, okay, I I got you. Okay, okay. This song is called "Search for Peace" uh, by McCord China. <laughs> If Coltrane were a poet, if Coltrane were a poet, words, words would spit like fire. Words, words would blaze across the stage at the speed of light. Words traveling at 186,000 miles per second. If Coltrane, if Coltrane were a poet, New York City cab drivers would no longer stop on a dime. Rather, they would ride slick, as in imitating lowriders and give homage to the train and a love supreme would be the national anthem. If Coltrane, if Coltrane were a poet, he would put a move, put a move on the women's movement, and they would have to bow and listen to the train in passing. If Coltrane were a poet, and to the train, all praises to the train, 
if Coltrane, Coltrane, if Coltrane on stage, on stage with words as if to be a poet, train going, train going, train moving, train going, 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 train gone with the wind. Mm. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, Jabu, um, yeah, it, it, it's, your, your sound is what's called going in, in and out. Oh, okay. Uh, All right. Well, I, I kind of fear that may happen, yeah. Yeah. So this is about Tina Garrett. I, was, I did it once before. Um, um, and and one of the program, another program, one that I had, and um, this is called now, in O W now. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, 
Yeah. So I'm going to have to say thank you so much for joining us because I I can't do both things at the same time. (laughs) So we'll continue (laughs) next week on Wednesday, and I'm going to go out with uh, Billy Harper's um, uh, Knowledge of Self, which is featuring uh, Amir Baraka doing a poem that he wrote about that. So. Thank you all so much for joining us, and Thank you. Um, Thank you, I will give you the link. And it's been really, really lovely. Oh, you're quite welcome. It's been great. We're gonna have a good time next week. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> all right, you all take good care. Have a good rest Bye. of the day. Yes. Okay, peace and blessings. Mhm. Bye. Fletcher's grandness, the heir to his big bandness, was a master who arrived to forever lay out the blue wonderfulness of the orchestra, Duke Ellington, whose greatness transcends all trends. Duke told Max, don't let them call your music jazz, because they can make anything that. What prophecy, cold and true? Why, they can say what your boy, what's his name, Elevated G is playing, is that? You did. But then, what's his name was the king of jazz? And what's the other dude was the king of swing? And we now up to in that alley, banging on them tin pans. They called it swing. But they meant a noun, not a verb. Never could get the verb in it. Remember all them ladies and men, masters and mistresses of the verbal thing? Ethel Waters and her blue, new American classical popular song. And Billy, who reached the deepest tear in our heart. And Ella, all flying off them wonderful bands who carried our hearts, our meaning in their songs. The royalty like Duke and the Count of Basie. The lady who made her alliance with the real American president, Mr. Young. And you know they swung. Bean, the mighty hawk, taught us all how Lewis sounded on another horn. And the cats in their band, Duke's people at the top of the steeple, Johnny Hodges, Harry Carney, Cootie Williams, Cat Anderson, Paul Gonzalez, Ben Webster, and other greats who morphed into another age. If the 20s was the jazz age, then the 30s, the Great Depression, people seemed like they got skinny. With the age of swing, from all those songs, the world was looking for love, but it seemed like there wasn't any. 
goose-stepping in Europe, pain in Spain. They was painting mustaches on the Mona Lisa and putting a commode in the museum. Had civilization stopped? My man Halim said they couldn't stop bebop, and they won't stop hip-hop. Bird blue, dizzy new, Max carried our original earth to this place where we grew. Bud smiled, and here come miles. There was a bee and a bop. It's just another beat, another bee, and another act. Where the is and the unis cohabit the same frame. But the sound was a verb, not a noun, unless you couldn't Congo style really get down our share shake. But then the could did, and then them original hipsters appeared with the Vance and the Bowie O'Rooney. Said you gotta have them black notes, actually they is blue. I want my fist flatted. And you gotta have the drum where we and the music come from. Dig, that word was the first I heard. It all can't be on paper. For the proper syncopation, you gotta have improvisation. We're gonna take them tired chords and make our own songs, our own stories. Otherwise, it's too dull. It don't swing. It ain't hip. We said we wanted wild, crazy, frantic. We wanted it to be exactly like us. Gone from the square world or out to lunch. My man Symphony Sid from the jazz corner of the world. It sounded like there was never anything before us. Hip as Birdland and it's lullaby where I first heard the divine one. Sassy say, you're not that kind of a boy. You're not that kind of a boy. You're not that kind of a boy for a girl like me. What? We heard of Fats Navarro and Fat Girl and Kenny Clark and Coog and Long Tall Dexter Gordon and Stan Getz and Zoot Sims. We heard the hippest people in the world. But remember, when you go out, somebody's going to try to bring you back in. Bop was too hot, the anti-bop squad say. Too fast, too crazy. Crazy, we said. The counterattack was to bring it back. Y'all been out to lunch too long, whether it was swing or bebop, Disney dream. If you wanted a cop, you had to hit the street. No road out of the jungle, that's 52nd Street, where the Charleston hit the New York docks. 12th Avenue was a shock. From Angola to the Gullahs in South Carolina, got the first thing smoke, went up to New York. Charleston, James P. wrote, to greet those who landed in the Devil's Northern House. Hell's Kitchen, to be exact. San Juan Hill, Monk and Vinnie Carter's home, where Lincoln Center sits still. That's right. He on the only money that ain't white. But what we was trying to say, when it got too hot, some folks tipped away from that street. I think it was the heat. Last scene heading west, they next address. It was cool, really cool. Some said, calm down. Miles said, get down. Stan heard, Clue, Budo, Jerry heard, Lee heard, John Lewis heard, Gil Evans heard, Pancho Haygood heard. They gave birth to the school, the real birth of the cool. When the memory of the hip starts to slip, the gorgeous blue, the funk we knew, they're going to bend their knees and raise it back from the mood indigo that flows out of the black. What was bad could be bad. Much, much better than that. That's spoke that. So when Cool started to fool with my man Jojo's soul, he went out and put the church in where the Negroes' eyes be rolling back in their head and start speaking some stuff ain't never been said. A dude named Buhena played them drums like he was insane or from the blue continent of dark under your heartbeat. Dudes named Horace drugged the funky gospel into the joints, hollering, let me see what you do with this shovel. And the Holy Ghost popping his tambourine, chick-a-ching, razzle in the room. That's nasty when you bring Africa and the Lord in like that. He wanted a messengers from the Holy Ghost Mau Mau Baptist Church, and they got a message from Kenyon 125th Street. 
the University of Blakey, the Academy of, well, it might have seemed like that, but it really was this, where you could dig Hank Mobley and listen nobly to the man who called the uncrowned king, Kenny Dorham, but always so many others came to fill up the space with names of that school, Clifford Brown, Luke Donaldson, Chrissy He, Donald Bird, Jack McLean, Lee Morgan, Benny Goldson, all the way to Billy Harper and Wynton Marcellus. What all that was is the saving of the deep historical bonds, the blues, the ancient call and response from across the trees and through the woods so you know where I am and I wait for your response. Our blue life memory all the way back across the world. The zigzag of chance, the improv, and fix however to the mighty drum, the rhythm of life, what has no beat cannot stay. What was called hard bop was something to wake us up again to the rhythm of ourselves. Max and Brownie, along with Ruhaina, helped bring the fire back. The post-cool smoke fanned through the wings of the great bird, but now the heavy motion would be by train. We call that band of miles the Hydrogen Bomb and Switchblade Band. Paul and Red, Cannonball, the Funkus, Mad Philly Joe and Train, the monster with the horn. Actually, Miles' great band was but a preface to another awesome being, Trains, Coy Tyner, Jimmy Garrison, Elvin Jones. But Train had to pass through the sphere of Theolonius to get deep into the Mysterioso of the Trump, leaving the world of the merely hip for the monkishly profound. Monk and Train at the five spot opened the new world of other than where you've been. Let me tell you, I was there. Train didn't even know the arrangements. He sounded like a stranger. But in a minute, Train was in it, and the whole building moved and pulled away. Little Rudy Tootie, jackying in Monk's moves. So around midnight, the new music came. We never was the same. By the time they got from the Bowery to Carnegie Hall, must have been time for something next stop new. Even a Pharaoh, an Ornette, an Albert, a Sun Ra fell by. They heard trains cry. Monks blew inside. A new world welcomed those with ears to hear. <laughs> 